Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. We record here in Israel on the eve of Yom HaShoah, a day that the country puts aside to honor the memory of the millions murdered in the Nazi Holocaust. It was a time when the world, for the most part, stayed silent and did not do enough to prevent or stop the genocide. This year, commemorating the day feels more relevant than ever as the scenes of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine revives the terrible scenes of atrocities in cities and towns that are so familiar to Jews and Israelis. We ask ourselves if the phrase never again really means anything anymore. This week, Zahava Galon, who served in the Knesset in the Meretz party for 16 years, six of them as the party leader, wrote a moving and provocative piece in Haaretz, headlined, A Genocide is Happening in Ukraine and Israel's Sending a Few Helmets. We are lucky enough to welcome Zahava Galon to the podcast. She now serves as president of Zulat, a think tank on human rights and equality that she founded with the ambitious goal of restoring, quote, the long-abandoned precept that Israel's duty is to be a light unto the nations. Thank you so much for coming, Zahava. Thank you, Alison. I want to start with the personal place you come from in writing your column. And besides Yom HaShoah is the time that we're supposed to remember the past and tell our stories. What is your family story? Well, I grew up in a house of Holocaust survivors. My father's family was burned in a synagogue in his uh, small town, Mariampol, uh, near Vilnius. And my mother's family escaped to Uzbekistan, to Tashkent, and they died from sorrow and hunger. During the years, I heard the stories of the Holocaust. And uh, my father, that came from a very ultra-Orthodox family, I think that I can say that he ended his relations with God. And, and I grew in a secular house. And instead of having God to rely on, we decided, my, my family, my mother, my father, they decided to rely on norms, on human dignity, on solidarity, on human rights. And uh, I think that this gave me the power or the idea to go through or to work through human rights issues, you know, to concentrate human rights issues. It set me the path to all my activities during the year. Is there any particular story or memory that you'll always think about when Yom HaShoah comes around, something that your parents told you? My mother, she knew many languages. And at that time, most of the Olim Chadashim at that time, during the 60s, they came to Israel and they started to try to find their relatives. So they came to our house to tell their stories in order to publish them. And my mother, you know, wrote everything and she published it. So I heard people's stories, so many stories of what was there. It was really very hard to internalize what happened there. So I heard all the stories of people from different towns, from different places. So it was a kind of a house that we knew that we have to help everyone to try to find their relatives. So the story of the Holocaust was in my house. 
someone who comes from that background, when you first saw the pictures on television of uh, what was happening in Ukraine, of what the Russians were doing, of the mass killings, the mass graves, do you think that it affects people who have a Holocaust experience or are a second generation Holocaust? I mean, especially when the scenes, Eastern Europe is so familiar to you. For me, it was so obvious that for our point of view as Israelis, I mean, people that, you know, six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, I thought that it's our obligation to stand and to, first of all, to condemn Russia, to condemn Putin. And I'm not a naive. I understand very well all the relations and all the sensitivities with Russia, why it's important not to cut the relations with them. But on the other hand, I thought that we should do something as an Israeli state because always we condemned those nations that they didn't stood for us during the Holocaust, like Switzerland, Sweden, they also had interests in Europe with Germany. And how come people here, we just, you know, made a kind of differentiation between the job of the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Yair Lapid, and the Prime Minister. Yair Lapid said he supports Ukraine. Bennett didn't condemn Russia. Come on. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the idea that we're in such a position. And, you know, a few days ago, we commemorized the Armenian genocide. I was very active during the years. Unfortunately, I didn't succeed to bring the Israeli government and the Israeli Knesset to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. So how come that we see the massacre in Ukraine, we saw the massacre in Armenia, and always it's because of political reasons. We don't do anything, even just just to announce that we acknowledge the Armenian genocide. Just to say something, always we think what's going to be the relations with Turkey because of that. Come on, there are things that they are not part of politics. They're part of our moral obligation to the people around the world. I'm old enough to remember, maybe you are as well, times when Israel has been in conflicts and we've asked Western nations to look beyond their national interests, their relationships with the oil-rich countries in the Middle East and try to stand with Israel, you know, on moral grounds. So it's something that we've asked of other nations as well, correct? I agree, of course, and that's why I couldn't understand why people were so angry on President Zelensky when he compared between the Holocaust and what's going on in Ukraine. And it was before the millions of refugees. It was only at the beginning, you know. So I don't want to compare. I don't think that we can compare something as the Holocaust because of everything, because of the apparatus, because of everything. We can't compare, but we can't forget also. And when people condemned Zelensky because of the comparison, so when we condemned the comparison, so we didn't deal with the problem itself. We didn't deal with what's going on there. You see the pictures, <laughs> the horrible pictures. And <laughs> wow, I, I said to myself and my parents, they're not with us anymore. So maybe lucky they are that they don't have to see the pictures once again, you know. So I didn't like the way that they condemned Zelensky because they tried to distract the discourse from the real issue. And the issue is that there is genocide that is made by Putin and his army. Yeah, they were trying to do both sides, right? Exactly. Con- condemning Putin for talking about denazification, which is, exactly. you know, uh, absurd. But and then at the same time saying, oh, well, Zelensky also shouldn't compare uh, the situation to the Holocaust. That's right. I thought you were very succinct when you wrote in your column when 
when we cried out at the comparison, we set aside the crimes themselves. That's right. I agree. You also wrote in your piece that genocide is happening before our very eyes and we send the victims a few helmets to ease our conscience. What do you think the Israeli government should be doing to help Ukraine? First of all is the way that you speak. I think that Bennett should have condemned Russia. And, you know, Putin also has his interest in the region. And I think this was the first thing that we had to do. Then I think it's really embarrassing to know that what they send in order to help the Ukrainian is some helmets. Biden announced a few days ago that what's going on in Ukraine, it's a genocide. And he decided to send them weapons. I don't know other things. So how come that we have such an army, we have weapons, we have everything. We use them for the wrong matters. We use our army for the wrong matters because when there is a country like Ukraine that it needs our help, we just, you know, forget about what's going on there. Do you feel like Israel's failing some sort of moral test it's been presented with? Yes, I think so. Especially today when we are going to talk about the Holocaust, the Remembrance, the Holocaust Remembrance Day. I think that we failed twice. First of all, to educate the people that when we say not anymore and, you know, all these issues, it's not only about us. It's not only about what happened in the 40s. It's also what's going on now, what happened in Sudan, in Eritrea. Look at the way that they treated the Sudanese that came to Israel that escaped from murder and genocide and everything. They were black. We didn't like their color, so we didn't accept that there is genocide there. And now we concentrate only about ourselves. So people are in a dangerous situation. So I think that we have to look in the mirror. So many years we say, how come? How it's happened? How come that the world didn't react at the beginning. And at that time, we didn't have WhatsApp, FaceTime, Facebook, all the social media at that time. So we are in a different world and we know everything at the same moment what's going on there. And we just allow ourselves to deal with other issues, to talk about Ethan Stephen, the astronaut. We talk about what's going on in Jerusalem, in the territories. Everything is important, but we deny it. It's a kind of a repression. We don't want to know. We don't want to hear. And it's hard to contain everything. I understand that. It's very hard because a good friend of mine told me, I don't want to watch television anymore. I just want to escape all the stories. I can't bear it. So people here, they're fed up of the stories. They don't want to know. Life is great. People in Tel Aviv, you know. We don't care what's going on in Ukraine. How does that inform the challenge that you take on in your NGO in uh, Zulat now that you're you know, no longer trying to take action through your government positions? You're trying to do it from the outside, from your NGO. W- what are you trying to do there? So first of all, we published policy position paper, a policy paper that we submitted to the Interior Committee in the Knesset, and we called them to accept the refugees. It was a month ago when, you know, when just the refugees started to come to Israel, and we said that the government policy, the government's plan is illegal and immoral. We asked them to um, accept the refugees. We asked them to treat them in a humanity way, you know, the way that Ayelet Shaked treated the refugees and those that are non-Jews. 
I was so ashamed, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. So Zula had sent this position paper that was written by Dr. Talik Ritzman Amir. It was really a very important paper because it gave the guidelines how to treat the refugees because we have the obligation, we have to protect rights of people around the world, not only here. People that they need our help. I was so ashamed. We didn't condemn Russia. We didn't accept at the beginning the refugees. The way that we checked whether they are Jews or non-Jews. Come on. It's the state of the Jewish people. Come on. I'm so disappointed. I'm so frustrated, I must say. You're about to celebrate your fourth year anniversary of leaving political life. I don't know if you consider yes. that a celebration <laughs> or a mourning period. You certainly missed a lot of election cycles. I can't finish this podcast or let you go by without asking you about the state of our so-called change coalition headed by Naftali Bennett, in which your party, Meretz, is a part. You've written in the past in Haaretz about the bitter pills that the leftist partners in this coalition have had to swallow already in order to be in a government headed by Bennett. And now with this crisis, with the defection of Edith Silman and the uh, razor thin, I won't even say really majority that the coalition has, and the leverage that the Yamina party members have on Bennett, it appears that the left is going to have to swallow some more bitter pills in order to keep the coalition together. Do you feel like Meretz should keep this government together at any price in order to prevent the possibility of elections, a possible return of Netanyahu? Or do you feel like there's red lines that simply shouldn't be crossed and it's worth going to elections in order to not be part of a government that does take certain actions? First of all, Alison, let me say that I support this government. It was very hard for me, you know, even to think about the idea that I'm going to support a government that Naftali Bennett is the head of the government. But I think it was important. It's a very complicated government. I'm not talking even about Edith Silman and the fragile situation now. And Merritt knew that it has to pay a prize, you know. We are not going to have discussions about ending the occupation, but we thought that we can maintain the situation. And it's not like this, because there is deterioration in the situation. Settlers beat Palestinians, beat soldiers, and nothing happened, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, they can do whatever they want. And now Gantz have a kind of an idea that was supported by Nir Orbach, actually, it's part of his demand to connect the illegal outposts to electricity. It's very hard for me to accept such a thing. I think it's important for each side of the government not to come with crazy ideas because each side tries to be more influential in the government. Now <laughs> the situation is very fragile. So if we want to keep this government, just the idea that Netanyahu might come back together with Smotrich, together with Ben Gvir. I don't want even to think about such an option. We swallowed frogs, but I don't think that we have to swallow hippopotamuses. Hippopotam- yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that we should break this government. I think it's important to keep the government. But it depends, you know, step by step, day by day. It's a very unique situation, you know, inside, outside. So yeah. we have to figure out how to handle it. I don't know exactly, but I'm lucky that I'm not now part of the government. I'm part of the civil society trying to influence policymakers and decision makers, MKs, to protect human rights, to advance equality. We don't hear a lot about uh, trying to seek peace anymore. I mean, it's mostly you're, we're fighting for the status quo. The left is fighting not to make things worse. That's a little bit sad, isn't it? 
It's not only sad, it's frustrating. We're going to mark 55 years of the occupation and they don't believe that the only issue that we deal with is how not to deteriorate the situation instead of doing something to end the occupation. But... Well, I wish we could end on a more uplifting note, but uh-huh. it is a somber day, Yom HaShoah, so yes. I guess that's not terrible. Zahava Galon, keep fighting, and thank Thanks. you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Alison. When we come back, we'll talk about the new revelations about the NSO group and its spyware with Haaretz technology correspondent Omer Ben-Jacob. Omer, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Hey, Allison, what's up? For people like me who get tend to get lost in the multiple news cycles, let's just review for a second. Yes. <laughs> You'll tell me if I get everything yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. NSO is an Israeli technology firm founded in 2010. True. It's famous or infamous for its spyware Pegasus, which can basically eat, extract all the contents of your smartphone, giving the person access to text, photographs. It can activate the camera and the microphone to spy on you because it's spyware. <laughs> and the person doesn't even have to touch the phone, right, to get uh, access to your cases, phone. In some cases, yes, yes. The company bills this as selling a tool to fight terrorism and crime mm-hmm. to governments around the world by infiltrating the phones of the bad guys, right? The bad and dangerous people. But the problem has been once the governments buy it, they can pinky swear all they want, <laughs> but it's ended up being used against political enemies, hapless citizens. And uh, there's been a long period of controversy over sales of the spyware and its misuse by totalitarian yes. regimes like Saudi Arabia, etc. Yes. So last we left the end <laughs> So Pegasus Previously saga. On. <laughs> in January and February, Israel was in this tizzy over the use by the police without proper court authorizations against citizens, even though its use in the end was found to be less extensive yep. than was reported in this infamous series of articles by the Kalkalis newspaper. Yep. Okay, yeah. that's where we left That's it. where we left off. Okay, now comes a massive, really long expose about NSO and where it's going in The New Yorker by one Ronan Farrow. First of all, what did we learn from this report? I think a lot of the narrative around NSO, and I think NSO in that sense has gotten slightly a raw deal, is that people tend to focus and we tend to hear about abuse in illiberal authoritarian countries. In an attempt to kind of answer that narrative, NSO gave Ronan Farrow crazy access. They let him spend up close to a year with him. And the story that came out showed that people will misuse or use this technology that was developed to fight terror, regardless of whether they are MBS or whether they are democratically elected government of Spain. And I think what's so interesting about Ronan Farrow's report is that it, it actually shows how, and I think this is the strongest quote in the entire piece, NSO has a monopoly in Europe. So we, we tend to think about, you know, this spyware being problematic when it falls into dark, evil regimes. What Ronan Farrow does, I think quite elegantly, though, albeit a bit long, in a slightly wordy fashion. It is the New Yorker. It is the New Yorker. So it's a very short <laughs> text. It's only 10,000 words. Is show how, even when it's reaches the most democratic Western European country, even when what they do, they do legally. It's very important. It's legal. Yeah. Within these countries, once you buy this, if it's a democratic country, they bought it according to, you know, procurement laws and the use is in some level legal we assume, then even then it's not being used for what in high tech is called the actual use case. So it's not used to fight pedophiles, to stop revenge porn, and to, you know, prevent terror attacks. It's used to spy on whoever the government doesn't like and whoever is, you know, kind of messing with their plans. And in Spain, a huge 
part of that post-2017 is the Catalanian separatist movement, which, regardless of my opinion or anyone's opinion about them, are a democratically elected movement that are serving in the Spanish parliament and have separatist agenda and want independence, but they're a democratically elected movement that is also peaceful. So unlike the Basque movement, historically, there's not, not in the recent years at least. So in that sense, it just shows how this type of technology will be abused in a sense, no matter what. Pharaoh says this was the use of the spyware against the Catalan movement. Yeah. He said 60 activists yeah. and 60 people and people's parents, etc. He built it as like the largest scale single uh, yeah. use of it against the largest number of people. Among those targeted were the current president of the Catalan regional government, Per Aragonas, and his two predecessors. So you're a reporter too, just like Ronan <laughs> Farrow. Omer, and you spoke to Per Aragonas. So what was his message to you? What I found so interesting about him is uh, that unlike many other people and a lot of other victims of NSO's spyware, he manages to do the very important distinction between Israel, NSO, and the people who actually operated the spyware. Because, for example, if you think about arms, right, if Israel sells some country a gun and this gun is then used to kill someone, no, the headline of that story would never be Israeli gun used to murder, right? Like, So in that sense, I think NSO, I don't accept that argument, but I think that at a, at a, at a wider level, they're kind of right that it's not inherently their fault what someone could do with it. It's their fault in the sense where they created an evil technology, and it's Israel's fault in the sense where we allow, as a state, actually push this out. And what Agonis, what, what, he's, Agonis, what he said was so interesting, he said, I don't blame Israel, I don't blame NSO, I blame Spain for buying a technology that's supposed to prevent me dying in a terror attack, and they're using it against me. And as a citizen, I would like to hear how we as a society can address this issue. And I think that's a huge point because, you know, if you go back to like the 70s or the 80s, states always were able to wiretap people, right? But there was legal oversight over it. There was some structure to support mm -hmm. that. Post-Snowden, right? Post the shift to mobile phones and encrypted technology, the state can't spy on you anymore, even if it wants, unless it knows how to do its own kind of version of Pegasus. And the assumption always, has always been that the more democratic the state, the better it is at doing that. But we've learned in Israel, yeah, and in Spain, that that's not really true. For example, Israel, we know that the police did buy Pegasus. We don't really know what use they made of it and if it had any legal meaning, but they did make use of it. And when you look at the legal apparatus, like, you know, the way to get it greenlit, it's literally like the head of the police calling up the head of, like, the AG being like, can I spy on this guy? And then they go, yeah, sure, but not too much. And he goes, Sababa. Like, that's the, that's the extent of, like, the oversight while a wiretap will require, you know, like, a million court orders and so on. I think in that sense, what's so interesting about the story is it shows how the technology is itself inherently dangerous and we need to be having a much wider ethical societal debate. For example, as citizens, does the state have the requirement to protect our privacy of our phones, for example? Is that part of my personal safety or is that just a privacy issue? So I think we're heading in a, to a wider kind of ethical social debate about this. What was interesting to me in the Pharaoh piece was all of the finger pointing, right? Um, countries finger pointing at Israel for allowing NSO to sell its technology. NSO slash Israel saying, hey, you're buying it like you're buying a weapon you know, you're responsible for how you use it, just like you said, Aragonis yep. doesn't throw Israel under the bus yep. for this one, and how since neither party seems to be particularly taking responsibility, and as the head of NSO says, there's no Geneva Convention for the use of exactly. spyware, so it's all ending up in court in these weird fights, battles between 
between NSO Group and technology companies whose uh, tools that they target, namely prominently um, Apple and Meta, Facebook. Yeah. And a fun part of this Sparrow yeah. article is uh, how the the workers in both of these companies are sort of chasing each yeah, other. Yeah, it's you a know? cat and mouse and cat, cat and mouse game. And I think what's so interesting about that is is if you take my previous comment about like you know the the state's ability to even try to regulate this kind of stuff, and then you look at the details of the story, we're actually getting a very accurate portrayal of the power in the world today. So the nation state is not the main unit of power. The big tech companies are. So the person who actually managed to stop NSO in the long run, what actually got NSO added to the American blacklist and what really got them in trouble was not that people like me and, you know, kind of liberal bleeding heart organizations revealed that this or that journalist was targeted, was Apple and Facebook flipping out at NSO and literally going to the Biden administration. What actually sealed the deal for the blacklist was Apple with Apple discovering that there was massive infiltration of their iMessage system and that like tons of people were, were victims across the world. And they flipped out at NSO. And I think that's what's so interesting. The big tech is what actually got NSO in trouble. I think, to be really honest, NSO is having a really bad moment now. Obviously, it's been, it's been, <laughs> it's been a, a bad year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a long, a two-year moment. But there's rumors that they may actually be sold. So let's take that scenario. In theory, someone who could buy them could be an American company, right? And then I think at that moment, there becomes a very interesting question of whether the American government still views them as a threat. Or I'll say it the way Nixon put it. When the CIA does it, it's not illegal, right? Mm. So... So I think that might be an interesting development. And the last thing I will say about that is that Ronan Farrow doesn't talk only about NSO. There's another firm noted there, Candilo, which is another firm that's been blacklisted by the state, that they can hack into Windows, like more computers kind of stuff. And I think in that sense, it's really important to remember that there's a wider, wider, wider ecosystem here. It's not just NSO. And there's an entire world of people who have this cat and mouse game with Apple and Facebook and uh, WhatsApp and all these kind of uh, tech firms. And the funniest part in Ronan Farrow's story is just how like geeky these wars are. Like engineers from Facebook literally have an anti-NSO team and then they try to entrap the NSO engineers and who then like put YouTube links to rickrolling in the code <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. So it's this really almost like geeky war happening behind the scenes while we imagine, you know, MBS sitting with Bibi like discussing Khashkugi yeah. and it's actually just, you know, geeky guys fighting over code. <laughs> what do you think of NSO's argument of listening and guys, you get rid of us, you're going to be dealing with these other companies that might be state actors for China and Russia, etc., that you should want us to stay in the game. You should want us to have this monopoly because at least we're a responsible company, you know, doing this in a, you know, semi uh, official way and, you know, asking for approval by yeah. from the Israeli government before we sell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you think that uh, that argument holds water? I think it, it holds water and it doesn't hold water. I've long said that I think the worst thing that can happen now is that NSO would fall apart. Was, the reason would be that three new firms would emerge from those talents whose names we don't know and wh whose you know tech we don't know to find and in that sense NSO's fall will not end the field it will just fragment it and create more that's one aspect of it the second aspect is that there are other firms like NSO so there's a famous or quasi-famous firm called Paragon which is also Israeli which is supposed to be kind of the good version of NSO the firm that emerged after all these kind of scandals and has learned from their mistakes so uh, NSO is right in the sense where if they fall apart the field doesn't die but they're wrong in the sense where there are already other forces out there that are trying to do things different and they're also right in the sense where yes I've gotten now in the past kind of few weeks or months I've started to hear about other state actors so I think China now has for the first time an NSO like company out there and I think that the more restrictions that are going to be on western companies to do business for example in places like Africa you can be sure 
that there'll be someone willing and if not already selling this technology there. So I think the problem is not NSO. The problem is the wider kind of hacker for higher market, the, the ability for countries and actors who couldn't do technological like spying in the past now have that ability. And they have that ability without any of the experience, any of the legal framework, any of the normative framework. And then it looks like that. <laughs> Omer, you've been asked this before on our podcast, but it's always news that mm. the uh, listener can use. What do people do who are freaked out about being spied on by their phones? I always say, like, chances are you're not worth the money. That's really important to say. <laughs> I know like, I'm not. No, you're really not. Like, I, even, I'm not worth the money. Like, it's literally, like, it's tens of thousands of dollars per target. Like, you need to be, or either you need to be important, or you need to be married to someone important, or you need to be, like, working for someone really important. And if you do, they should probably have some cyber defenses. But generally, the three golden rules are never use Wi-Fi. Never. Ever. Ever use any form of public Wi-Fi. Use only Wi-Fi that you trust in your home, maybe even your office. I don't even connect in Aretz. Wow, you don't trust Aretz? I don't trust any Wi-Fi that is not personally paid for by myself. Okay. Generally. And I would literally say that using like a airport Wi-Fi is literally... I have references that are about safe sex, so I'll just leave it at that level. <laughs> so let's just imagine that the airport is a metaphor about that. Okay. Two, never open any link any link you get from anyone, including your own mother, unless they told you specifically that they're sending you this link right now. Okay? Because okay? if I send you a link, it might look legit because I could, you know, we're friends, so I'll send you a story. But if I didn't tell you I'm sending you a link, don't click on it. And generally, my third, and this is just like, I think a good one is treat your phone as if it could one day be lost. So don't actually keep a screen capture that's called passwords and have all your passwords there. So prepare for a world in which you can gradually abandon your phone. And generally, this will, will kill me for saying this, but iPhones are the most exposed. A lot of cyber people have really esoteric phones because they say that the more esoteric the firm who created your phone, the less chance there's someone investing money to hack it. So in some weird, ironic way, some of the Chinese firms are actually the safest because no one's invented the tech to hack them. Mm -hmm. Let's not lie. Yeah, I have an iPhone. But <laughs> I get checked quite frequently. You can also get checked. And if you want, I have a great story about that online. You can also email me. Sounds great. So no Wi-Fi, don't open links, and get a weird phone. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Omer. It's always fun having you on. A pleasure. Always fun to be here. And that wraps things up for this episode of Haaretz Weekend. I'd like to thank my producer and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan, and my guests, Zahava Galon and Omer Ben-Jacob. Until next time, I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.